Psalm 45, for the chief musician, set to the lilies, a contemplation by the sons of Korah, a wedding song. My heart overflows with a noble theme. I recite verses for the king. My tongue is like the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of the sons of men. Grace has anointed your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Strap your sword on your thigh, mighty one, your splendor and your majesty. In your majesty, ride on victoriously on behalf of truth, humility and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. The nations fall under you with arrows in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. A scepter of equity is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. All your garments smell like myrrh, aloe, and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women, and at your right hand the queen stands in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, consider and turn your ear. Forget your own people and your father's house. So the king will desire your beauty. Honor him, for he is your lord. The daughter of Tyre comes with a gift. The rich among the people entreat your favor. The princess inside is all glorious. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She shall be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be led. They shall enter into the king's palace. The sons will take the place of your fathers. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall give you thanks forever and ever. This is a very, very cool psalm, very unique too. It's set to the tune called The Lilies. We don't know that tune, but I guess it was a popular song in its day. Everyone knew how to sing this song. It's a very unique psalm. This is a psalm about the future wedding of Christ and the church. Now, you might say, how on earth did the sons of Korah know to write such a thing? Well, they didn't. <laughs> but the Lord took a hold of the pen. And, they, and what I'm trying to say is this psalm is almost divinely inspired. And we, hit, we see it right here in verse 1. He says, my tongue is like the pen of a skillful writer. In other words, he's receiving something. He's not just making it up himself, but he's like receiving it and writing it down. He says, I recite verses for the king. And so we get the sense that he's like a scribe. He's like hearing what God is saying and writing it down. Now, some people have said, oh, this is a, because it's a wedding song. Some people have said, oh, it's a wedding of the king of Israel. Other people have said it's a wedding of Christ and the church. Jewish experts say it's a wedding of God and Israel. I think, um, I used to think it was kind of a combo. It was kind of a wedding of the king psalm and also a, a psalm of Christ and the church. But now as I've thought about it more, it's just about Christ and the church. And I think the writers at the time didn't realize it. I mean, there's so many things in here. For example, in verse two, he's talking about the king who's gonna get married, which is Jesus. He says, you are the most excellent of the sons of men. Grace has anointed your lips and God has blessed you forever. It can't be anyone else than Jesus, the most excellent of all men, someone who God has blessed forever. That's Jesus. Verse three, 
Strap your sword on your thigh, mighty one. Everywhere that the phrase mighty one is used in the Bible, to my, the best of my understanding, it's always talking about God. So this is talking about Jesus, who is our God. In verse 4, it says, In your majesty, ride on on behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. That's definitely talking about Jesus. <laughs> and what's more, when we get down to verse 6, it actually quotes the verses here in the book of Hebrews. It says, Your throne, God, is forever and ever and righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's a throne from he, a quote from he, that's found in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. It says in verse 7, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God has anointed you with the oil of joy. That, these verses are quoted in the book of Hebrews, and it says very clearly it's talking about Christ. So we know from the New Testament this is a psalm about Christ, and if he's getting married to someone, who is it? It's us, the church. And it says in verse 9, at your right hand, the queen stands. <laughs> it's you and me, the bride of Christ, the queen. How cool to be called the queen. What a thought. And um, verse 5, it says, the nations are under you. And uh, so, you know, and that's Christ. Christ came to conquer the nations and the gospel is conquering the nations right now. And um, now... And of course, if we look into the New Testament, we find that the idea of Jesus Christ and the church being married is definitely a theme there. So it's in the Old Testament, obviously, concealed, but it's in the New Testament, revealed. So we've got it here in the Old Testament in Psalm 45, very clearly a wedding psalm about Christ and his wife, but it doesn't say the word Christ, but it's clearly talking about the Messiah. Jewish people see these things. But in the New Testament, we know that there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, this is the psalm for it. It's a song, a, a wedding song. Now, in, um, in Revelation, it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it said that the bride has made herself ready. So I'd like to say that this wedding, it's kind of something that's happened and it's kind of something that hasn't happened. It's both of those at the same time. And I know that's a strange thing to say, but it's a bit like the kingdom of God. It's something that exists now. You know, we're in the kingdom. We're in the kingdom now. The kingdom of God is in us now. But at the same time, the kingdom in its ultimate form hasn't happened yet. And that's like the wedding of the Lord. It's like we are the bride of Christ now, but the bride clearly hasn't made herself completely ready yet because the body of Christ the church is still, has its imperfections. So it's one of these kind of now and not yet things which we find at times in the Bible. Um, in uh, Ephesians, I think it's chapter 5, Paul has this little passage where he talks about husbands and wives, and he says, you know, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. And then he says, you know, wives, submit to your husbands, just as the church submits to Christ. And then he says that a husband should be joined to his wife and they'll become one flesh, which is, you know, talking about sex, but also talking about the joining of their hearts to one another, not just the joining of bodies. But then it says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And then he goes on to say, this is a great mystery. So there's actually supposed to be the joining of our hearts to the Lord so that we become one. Now, we're not going to become one with the Lord unless we come, become one with each other as well. So there's this process at work where we become, we're becoming one with God 
in a mysterious way. Now, this isn't figured, like the wedding of the lamb isn't some figurative, less real thing, but marriage on the earth now, which is a real thing, is that's figurative of a more real type of marriage. So God didn't make marriage on earth as a reality to kind of give us an idea of something that's not real, but he's just, it's a kind of a thing. No, there's a real thing where we become married to Christ in eternity. We become of one heart with him. In other words, we're inseparable with God, almost like the Father and the Son are one. It's almost like we're supposed to be included in the Godhead somehow. Well, that's the real marriage. There cannot be, that's a far more real thing than we understand, but God has created earthly marriage as the symbol of that more real thing. So we often think of physical symbols, uh, um, you know, we often think of figurative things as less real, but in the mind of God, they are the more real thing. So this is a wedding psalm, but it's speaking of uncountable wonders, wonders we cannot get our mind around. Like in verse 11, it says, the king will desire your beauty. Think of that. Think of a man that looks at his, at his wife, maybe on her wedding night, but maybe many times after that and thinks how beautiful she is and he wants her. And verse seven says, the king will desire your beauty. This is God who looks at his church and loves her and desires her. And then it says to the church, honor him for he is your Lord. Well, that's a command to us. We are to honor our Lord, respect him. There's something about that that makes us desirable. And then in verse 17, it says, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. The people will give thanks to you forever and ever. We're going to be wedded to Christ forever and ever. It's the most wonderful thing. And you cannot begin, I cannot begin to get even a 1% of a grip on what that all means. But all I know is that Psalm 45 is a wedding song. It's about something wonderful that's going to happen. And we get a glimpse of it. So thank God for that. Lord, I thank you for the wedding song that's right here in the book of Psalms. Thank you, Lord, that it shows us that we're wedded to Christ. We're wedded to Christ right now, but ultimately there's going to be a deep wedding and we're going to belong to Christ and have one heart with him. Lord, all I can say is bring the process about quicker. And Lord, let us be one with our fellow believers now so that that process might be speeded up. In Jesus' name. Amen.